Like I actually think the most natural personality type to be an entrepreneur is a class clown. Like if you fundamentally didn't believe in rules in grade two, like you are perfect at 21 to be like, why, why do we build things this way? Like why, why do we have to do things this way? And that like questioning and curiosity is a really good trait. And then it's about, you know, just putting your own horsepower behind it and making it a reality. This is Decoding Digital, and I'm your host, Daniel Sachs. Every episode, we hear from someone who is working to build something new in the digital economy. Each guest has a unique perspective to share, and together we work to understand or decode a trend that is shaping our digital world. Today, I'll be decoding venture capital with Michelle Romano. Let's decode. Michelle, by the time she was 30, was a serial entrepreneur, having started over five businesses. She focused on resilience to be able to pivot that into a career in television. She was the star of Canada's version of Shark Tank called Dragon's Den and evaluated hundreds, if not thousands, of entrepreneurs on that show. And from her learnings on how to win in financing entrepreneurs, she discovered that she could create an AI-driven platform to improve the way that people take investment. And that will totally change the game for businesses around the world having access to the capital and the technology they need to scale their businesses. Here we go. Well, well, welcome, Michelle. Uh, great to be speaking with you. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here, Dan. Amazing. So um, I know you were recently awarded the Forbes Millennial on a Mission list, only <laughs> Canadian to be on that list. I uh, would love to know, you know what that's all about and what your mission is. Yeah, you know... It's a good question. So like I started off uh, as an engineer in undergrad um, and met a couple friends and we were just determined to be entrepreneurs. And so the first business that we came up with, um, you know, was could we build, we, we figured out the worldwide supply of caviar was down by 95% because the world had overfished the Caspian Sea, um, entered some business plan competitions, and then were crazy enough to graduate and actually go try and build it. So like, we drove out to the East Coast, like boats, fishermen, my hands knee deep in fish, like the whole nine yards. And the crazy thing is we were right. Chefs couldn't find the product, so they loved it. Um, but then we went into a recession in 2008, and I realized I was 21 years old selling the world's most unnecessary luxury product. So that was uh, that was kind of the beginning of my entrepreneurial career. And then from there, I got to do a lot of other things. We ended up building one of the big e-commerce companies in Canada, um, which is now the Emerge Brands. Uh, built an, an early AI app that got sold to Groupon in 2014. And then I got to join you know the cast of Dragon's Den. Um, and am now really devoted to making it easier for founders to raise capital for their business because it's the biggest problem we have. And, uh, and that's been my work at ClearBank. So that's now my mission is how do we get um, more, anyone with a great idea, no matter where you're from or no matter where you grew up to be able to get funding for your business. That's great. So before starting ClearBank, started you know, five businesses, you're on Dragon's Den, you're seeing a lot of ideas. How do you really understand what's a good idea from a bad one? And you know, how have some of your investments through Dragon's Den been? How do I really understand um, a good idea from a bad one? So I kind of like to think more about the entrepreneur. And I think ultimately, 
the thing with ideas is like they pivot so much as you're building, right? Like, you know this too, right? As you start a business, you have an idea of what you think is going to be a good market and what you think is going to be a good business model. Um, and then, you know, you try it and you're like, oh, the market doesn't like this. And you have to like keep iterating that idea until you get to big innovation. And so when you look on Dragon's Den, it's always very focused on like the idea and the market. But what I'm always ultimately looking for is that entrepreneur that has that persistence and resilience that they can really um, they can really continue to iterate and pivot their business. And that that's a pretty brutal process. I mean, like that's going out there with a product, putting all of your social credibility and saying we're launching it. And then it's like, no one likes it. It's like punched in the face. It's like, okay, I got to try it again. And many businesses don't take one or two iterations. They take like eight or nine um, to really get right. Even on ClearBank, I mean, this was the third product uh, that we tried and this was my fifth startup. So it wasn't like I didn't have experience. And so I kind of call it like the je ne sais quoi. Like it is this resilience and this chip on your shoulder as a human that allows you to get that kind of success as a founder. And sometimes that's, you know, not having other options in life. Sometimes that's having something to prove. It comes in so many different places. But when I bet on that trait, that's when I've always had the most successful investments. So Michelle, tell me about ClearBank. Yeah, so it's a great story. So I joined the cast of Dragon's Den six years ago and I'm watching all of these entrepreneurs. We see 250 entrepreneurs in 17 days on the show. And I'm watching all these entrepreneurs come on the show and they're giving up effectively equity in their business to go buy um, Facebook and Google ads. And I'm like, this doesn't really make sense um, for these businesses. So I remember on the show, and these are like all businesses with positive unit economics that they need capital to grow. And so I remember on the show being like, you know, look, these entrepreneurs are looking for a hundred grand. Instead of me giving them a hundred grand and taking 20% of their company, why don't I do this? Why don't I give them a hundred thousand dollars and take 5% of their revenue until they pay me back 106. So I was only going to charge 6% for my capital. It wasn't very expensive. Um, this wasn't a loan. There was no fixed payment timelines or compounding interest or personal guarantees. This was a true like revenue share deal. And the entrepreneurs on the show like loved it. I never guessed from there that we, you know, have deployed a billion dollars to founders this way. We've invested in 2,500 different e-commerce companies, making us the largest e-commerce investor. And I think this all happened because, you know, we realized that like 40 to 50% of venture capital dollars were being spent on advertising, which means that founders were using the most expensive capital to do something by definition that should be repeatable and scalable. So now our capital can be used for anything. It's not just uh, ad spend where we started, but it's allowed us to be able to build, um, you know, a data-driven way to invest in thousands of different businesses and do that in a much more egalitarian way. And it's been so powerful that last year we've invested over a billion dollars in 2,500 e-commerce companies, making us probably, uh, you know, the largest e-commerce investor in the world. I don't know anyone else that's invested in that many businesses in uh, in a single vertical. And the way we could do that is we had to automate all of the all of the effective due diligence that a VC would do. So we look at the same things. We have you plug in your digital data sources, and so we can calculate your you know lifetime customer value and your return on ad spend. Um, but because we're doing that in an automated way, we can do it all, you know, in 20 minutes uh, versus this process where we're asking founders for this. 
The other thing that happened, and I don't think I fully expected this. I was thinking about speed when we built this and what would be like better from a founder in terms of speed. Um, but now that we've done so many deals, what we've realized is by using like AI and data science to make investment decisions and not human to human um, interactions, we've removed a lot of the bias out of investing decisions. So, you know, we funded eight times more women than the venture capital industry average. We funded founders in all 50 states in America. For comparison, um, 80% of VC dollars last year went into four states in America. So that's a huge difference in terms of diversity and, you know, a, a ton more founders from uh, diverse backgrounds. So you're digitally transforming venture capital. Yeah, that's our goal. <laughs> to that's totally amazing. disrupt venture capital. <laughs> what do you see as the future of e-commerce? Such a good question. So the first thing is we have accelerated from e-commerce in 2020 to e-commerce in 2030 overnight with COVID. And I think the number is we have gone from, you know, 14% of total retail sales in the United States uh, pre-COVID. And now we're at close to 28%. I mean, that is like a 10-year shift in three months. And so what this means is that, first of all, every business will have some sort of online presence because no one's going to forget this. Like, you know, if you're a shoe store in a small town, you're going to be like, oh, I need an e-commerce business because there could be a time where I will have to shut my doors for four months because we all just experienced this crazy kind of world event. And so every business I think today will be built with some sort of e-commerce presence. Um, you know, that's probably the first thing. And then the second thing that COVID did is it really accelerated all of these e-commerce categories that people consider difficult. And so, you know, people considered food difficult. Like, I don't know how to deliver a perishable item. And I don't know if my berries are going to be crushed. And like, you know, there was this fear around doing this. And then, you know, you order grocery delivery a couple of times. And you're like, this is way better. <laughs> what was I doing this whole time? And people that are, you know, in our parents' generations are now ordering groceries. You know, big bulky items had always been scary, right? Furniture, all of that has really changed. People are getting barbecues delivered, all sorts of things that we thought were too big for delivery. Um, and the last category that we really broke open in COVID um, was things that felt very personal that you had to try, like color cosmetics. And now we've created all of these like insane online tools where people feel very comfortable buying categories like that. And so that's probably, that's been a big part of the shift. Um, and so I think that we're just going to continue to see uh, e-commerce surge. And with ClearBank, are you finding some of your uh, people that you're funding were traditional businesses that are now growing an e-commerce presence or is it often built from scratch e-commerce? It's, it's both. So we see um, a lot of businesses that had really meaningful wholesale businesses or brick and mortar businesses that now need to come online. Um, we have seen businesses that have actually closed all of their retail stores. So we have a couple chains that had like 250 retail stores and then went entirely online um, you know, with a, with a really strong brand that people recognize. Um, and then we see a lot of like native, um, digitally native e-commerce brands where it's, you know, founders that have been like, we're going to start this first for the internet and then figure it out from there. Wow. So how do you assess resilience? <laughs> um, I don't know. You try and hear people's stories and, uh, and see how they've really been able to handle, uh, a lot of things and, and where they are and, it's also like, what kind of adventure you want to ask? I mean, that's one of my favorite interview questions is like, what, what adventure are you looking for in the next two years? Like, I'm not going to give you like a, 
calm, cool lifestyle kind of job, right? I'm going to give you a ride of your lifetime, never been more excited, also probably never been more stressed out kind of job. And so it really depends on if people are in um, in the mood for that. Yeah. So so talk about the tech. You, you mentioned that you layer in AI. How did yeah. the platform emerge and what were some of the tech challenges uh, for being able to you know, bring this to market? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so the first thing is we couldn't have built this business like four years ago because you actually couldn't get access to this many digital data sources in a reliable way. So when a founder looks for money from us, we're saying, you know, give us access to your payment processor, your bank account, your ad spend accounts. So we can see how efficient your ads are. Um, and, a, and a bunch of different data that we connect. And so the first thing is that's really easy for a founder. If you remember your passwords, this takes you like 15 minutes to connect to us versus this like process with VCs, which is like, pull this number, build me this spreadsheet, build cohort analysis. Like that all takes a lot of time and I've done that process. Um, and then we've just gotten better and better. Like, I won't lie. I mean, our early cohorts, we lost 20% of our money. It was really expensive to do that. And, you know, then you can get better and better over time in terms of what we're looking for. But it's an enormous amount of data we're processing. Um, it's an enormous amount of money we're moving, especially during times like Black Friday. So we've had to really like ramp up infrastructure over time. Um, and it's been uh, it's been a fun journey to go on. That's incredible. And um, so what were some of the learnings from that early cohort that you applied to the algorithm uh, in this more recent cohort to drive better returns? There was a lot around what size of business you need to be to be stable. So that point where you kind of get out of side hustle into like something that could, you know, sustain you as a single founder, because then you're seeing people that are a lot more committed. Um, so we need founders to have $10,000 in monthly revenue, which still means we can start founders at a when they're pretty small. Um, like that's still a, a very seed stage side company and we'll um, give founders up to $10 million so they can really scale with us. So there was a lot of learnings around there. There was a lot of learnings around, um, you know, the, the type of business where your inventory sources are, like there was looking at risky behaviors that could have happened uh, that we could see with processing data, returns data. Like there's so many things that we've learned that we didn't expect that you can only do with a big enough data set. Um, and so I think this was kind of the cool thing is a lot of people will say, well, look, you know, AI, if you build it on your old models, it will just take our inherent biases that we had before and then supercharge them. <laughs> um, but here in this model, what we were doing was we were automating not the part of the process with the bias, which is the human part. We were just automating the diligence part and saying, you know, if these businesses had really solid unit economics, good return on ad spend and hadn't effectively saturated their audiences, um, they could continue to grow a lot. And is there any human element to this? Do you meet the entrepreneurs? Is there a human screen and interview? There's, yeah, there is a human element where we at least make sure that the entrepreneurs totally understand our, our product because it is like, this was very revolutionary. I mean, I went, we had to raise, you know, a ton of money for this business. Um, you know, I think we've raised, I don't know, close to $400 million now. And everyone on Wall Street told Andrew and I that we were completely nuts for doing this. They're like, this sounds like you're giving really small businesses money with like no security, no personal guarantees. Like, you know, ma'am, this is not how you, this is not how you do this. Like I literally got that. And, you know, our thesis was we were pretty sure that the data um, would give us, you know, better performance, not worse performance, but it took years to really prove that out. So now because we invented something new, um, we, um, 
we wanted to make sure we explain our product. So we do try and talk to every founder. You can go through a process without talking to someone, um, but we like to be able to make sure like we explain, we just double check. And then we like build that relationship because then there's a lot of ways that we can help. We have, you know, a program where if you want equity fund dollars um, at some point and you're kind of in this high potential zone, we can introduce you to other VCs or venture partners in our network. Um, we have a ton of agencies that we work with that we can help you optimize your ad spend. And so after you're in our network, there's a lot more we can do. And so we want to have that, you know, touch point where you meet someone on our team. So you started with a few data sets. You mentioned like Google ad spend and others. What are some additional data sets you think in the future could be interesting to assessing success? Oh man, the internet spits out so much data. <laughs> so it's just, um, you know, it's a, it's a matter of time and, uh, and things that, you know, what we cared about in the early days was um, data sets that couldn't be altered. And so we always knew that we were seeing in real time how businesses were doing. Um, and then I think there's businesses that look closer to, um, you know, what humans upload and play with. And so those would be things like accounting data. Um, there's lots of other forms of like traffic data and and tons of things that we can look at. I mean, the advantage of servicing e-commerce companies is that they're all online by definition. And so you can take a lot of, you know, what's happening um, to their core business and really translate that into how they'll, they'll uh, grow. Got it. So a lot of people in our community are aspiring entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs at large enterprises. Uh, what advice would you give them when they're starting with a vision? I think my, my biggest piece of advice is like, just get started. What typically happens to early entrepreneurs is they spend two years researching. <laughs> and here's the thing is you're never going to feel like it's the right time. Like it's never going to feel like you have enough knowledge. Um, but you, but by getting going, it's like by jumping in the pool, you have to swim. <laughs> and that's the part that's super important because I see so many entrepreneurs of like, I've been thinking about this. I've been working on this. And I'm like, well, if you just get started, um, if you just try and get your first customer, even if you don't have the perfect product or it's not quite ready yet, you'll start that process of like learning and iterating. And that iterative process is what creates great innovation. Like we make this mistake where we think that we can dream up a big innovation. And we, and we kind of do this disservice to entrepreneurs all the time, because even when founders like you and I talk about our business, we only have 30 seconds to describe it. So we talk about like, one eureka moment, we knew this was going to happen. And then this is a big success story. But I mean, you and I both know that it didn't happen like that. It took years of like, perfecting and changing a business model a little bit. Um, to really get to the point where, um, where it was working. And so I always like to remind people that like, great, you know, innovation comes from a lot of iteration. And so it should feel like every day you're trying, and it's getting a little bit better. Um, versus, you know, having one amazing idea. And that should make the barriers to starting so much lower as well. It's like, you don't need, you know, the most incredible idea in the world to get going. You just need to start and you'll eventually get there. Yeah. And that's where I love resilience as well. And you brought that up earlier, but just the concept of like assessing resilience, building that muscle, uh, that really leads to, to great uh, entrepreneurship and growth. Um, so what else do you do um, to really keep yourself sharp? You're obviously, you know, really busy, accomplished person. Um, what do you do to stay focused both at work and in life? That's a good question. Um, and I think the answer to this is like, I'm not perfect either. Like I, I hear so many people being like, I wake up at 6am. I have morning routines. I like always do things. I'm like, 
like I wake up and I do the first sin, which is I check my cell phone because to me, I like want to know that like nothing is burning down. And that's actually very calming for me because I have a good, I have a very high um, filter for like things going wrong. So as long as nothing's blowing up, I can be like, okay, I can start. Um, I'm not a morning person. I like work at night. Uh, so I've never, I've never been, um, I've never been that way. I think one of the things that's super helpful to keep me focused is remembering that I can only do like three things a day that will really move the needle. And so being really selective and like ruthlessly prioritizing. I think one of the things that's really tempting to do is like, you know, you create a list at the beginning of the week and then you're like, I have to finish this list where I think every day things actually change. And the faster you can iterate your own cycles and figure out what really matters. Um, when I feel overwhelmed to try and go outside, I like grew up in the mountains in Calgary. And so I think that like being in nature, like really, really resets you. And then I think the other just hack is being around, um, especially for entrepreneurs, a group of other entrepreneurs, because no matter how close your other friends can be, there is nothing quite like this risk profile and needing to fail this often in the career. Like it's just every day there's something that blows up and something that doesn't go wrong. And I always find being around my other entrepreneur friends reminds me that that's like a totally normal part of the journey that most of the biggest companies in the world were a disaster for the first 10 years, not the first like six months. <laughs> They're like just figuring it out. And, you know, that makes it so much easier for me to be like, okay, Michelle, just like keep going. And for ClearBank, what's 10 years from now look like? What, what do you hope to accomplish in, in 10 years? Oh, I mean, I hope that we can be, you know, a funding option for every entrepreneur in every country in the world if they have an idea. Because fundamentally, like, capital has been, let me put it this way. You know, it was, today we beg, like, VCs for money when we want an idea built or, you know, high net worth families. But, you know, if we look even 2,000 years ago, it wasn't any different. It was just you as the entrepreneur were begging the king. And the king decided which roads got built and the king decided which businesses got built. And, you know, that created a lot of challenges because you needed to have these deep relationships with people that had capital. And the more that we can make this around, you let your data just speak for itself. If you have a good business, your data will show that. It was just that there were so many people that had awesome businesses that could never get in front of the right people. And I think that will build the world that we want to see because I genuinely believe on like betting on entrepreneurs to solve the world's biggest problems. Like I look at a problem like climate change and you're like, well, governments have now spent, you know, trillions of dollars on this problem. And the people that have made the biggest difference in solving something that's like huge have been entrepreneurs. It's like the entrepreneur that built cars and trucks that people wanted to drive that were, that were green. It was the Nest thermostat actually made a meaningful difference in greenhouse gases in the United States. It was, it was entrepreneurs that developed these solutions. And so I think that, um, that that's my long-term bet, and I really hope we can get there. And from your experience with Dragon Den, can anyone be an entrepreneur? For sure. I do not think that this is – I think this is something you have to want to do. Because this is like, this is not for the faint of heart. And this is not for the folks that, you know, don't want to work hard. But if you want this, you can, I think you can learn risk-taking tolerance. You can learn how to hustle. You can learn um, how to sell. And those are kind of the primary components of being able to do this. It's like, are you willing to put yourself out there and like look stupid when your idea doesn't work and then try again and try again and try again? 
are you willing to figure out how to sell? And because you're selling all the time, you're selling your product, you're selling to get employees, you're selling to the capital. Um, are you willing to do that? And then um, are you just, do you have the resilience where you really want that? But I a hundred percent believe that can be learned. Like there are more natural personality types for this career. Like I actually think the most natural personality type to be an entrepreneur is a class clown. Like if you fundamentally didn't believe in rules in grade two, like you are perfect at 21 to be like, why, why do we build things this way? Like, why, why do we have to do things this way? And that like questioning and curiosity is a really good trait. And then it's about, you know, just putting your own horsepower behind it and making it a reality. Michelle, there are all types of entrepreneurs out there that you see, ones that interact offline, ones that interact online. You know, what's the secret sauce uh, to making their business successful? I think the first thing is you have to have an interest in learning online because it is a way more technical space than operating offline. There are so many businesses. I mean, you think about your favorite restaurant, or your favorite bar, they can build an incredibly loyal base by just creating a human to human interaction. And there's like an incredible skill set. And effectively, what we're doing is we're trying to duplicate that same behavior offline. And so, but that comes in different forms, right? That's like an email touch point. That's personalization that feels personal, but not creepy. That is reminding you when you think you might've wanted to do something, um, you know, but didn't like a retargeting ad where you just like keep seeing something that you clicked on and you're like, oh yeah, I really do want that. Thank you for reminding me. Um, and so I don't think it's like, first of all, I think that anyone that's offline can go online. I think people can totally transition between the two. It's really about um, interest and then an interest in getting technically good at some of these things um, because it's not, you know, super simple. There's much, much, much better low tech tools out there, um, but you do need to like want to learn um, and you want to be able to think about how do you replicate the same thing you were doing in person online and you know, some people will be like, well, why do I want to do that? Like, well, the advantage of that is that you can replicate yourself to not 100 people, but like 20 million people. And the scale that comes with that is, uh, is really powerful in being able to share your brand and share your story. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Today with Michelle, we had the pleasure of going through her experience and learning how she pivoted her career as a serial entrepreneur into television and ultimately to transforming the venture capital industry. She shares her thoughts on what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur, whether it's at an enterprise or whether it's starting a company from scratch, and really pinpoints the focus on resilience as a skill set for success. She also touches on ClearBank and her vision for the future of venture capital and the ability to help businesses scale through access to capital in a way that's AI-backed this is just the beginning of ClearBank. She's done so phenomenal so far, but we're going to see far more from Michelle, Andrew, and the team at ClearBank. Don't miss the next episode of Decoding Digital. Every day was worse than the previous day. The cliches abounded, right? And my favorite was my favorite one was don't catch a falling knife. It's like the cliches are not helpful. Like everything's just up and it's time to like try to deal with it and, and figure your way through it. Thinker, writer, activist, runner, mentor, investor, and legend of the startup world, Brad Feld. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.